Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, just back from vacation, Bart Sheridan, and back with us today is last week's host. Tim, thank you very much for filling in in this chair, but uh, that's Tim Cockrell. Tim opened a new study in Exodus this week's uh, past Sunday sermon, and that message is going to be the focus of our discussion today. So Tim, again, thank you for filling in. I uh, did a great job, I know, and I'm glad to be back to talk with you today. Yeah, great to have you back. I was thankful for John and Tom. They did a great job. And I have to tell you, being the host, you make it look easy. It's, it's a lot harder than you think. You did quite well. You did quite well. I had actually had one person email me, a regular listener, and he his subject line was question mark. <laughs> Are you not hosting anymore? I said, well, hey, thanks for noticing. Thanks for noticing. But no, it is great to be back. And we're starting a brand new series in the book of Exodus. Uh, We just got finished with our study in Matthew. And if you're just tuning in to us for the first time or haven't been with us for a while, invite you to go back to this past, uh, what, uh, it was eight months or so Mm -hmm. that we were in Matthew, uh, even starting before you came uh, to join us here in ministry. So go back and listen to that. A lot of rich, uh, rich material in there and just a great study of God's word. But we have rolled to the New Test or the Old Testament rather, and we plan to be in the study of Exodus for much of the coming year. Let's lay some groundwork here, Tim. What goes into deciding here at Grace what's going to be our next focus of study, and why in this case Exodus? Right. So the elders are very kind to give me a, a lot of latitude to kind of lead out in that as the the senior pastor. For me, I think it's important over the course of a year to have kind of a steady, balanced diet of Scripture, that we're not just feasting on the Gospels or just feasting on the epistles, which quite honestly, for New Testament Christians, that tends to be where we gravitate toward. And so I always try in any course of a given year to also incorporate some Old Testament literature. Now, sometimes that might be Ecclesiastes or something in the Psalms, it might be something in the Prophets or some of the Old Testament narrative. And so for me, as I looked at where grace has been, we've been in the New Testament for the last several years and just the richness of the book of Exodus. You know, there's so many illusions and anticipations of the redemption that we see in Jesus that it builds so many bridges for us to to worship God in his glory, to be appreciative of Christ as our Passover lamb. And this is an event that the Old Testament regularly goes back to as as kind of a picture of redemption. So if we understand this, it begins to help us understand a lot of other pieces of the Old Testament as well. And we've talked about this before, but I think it just bears uh, mentioning again, and that is that the, the Bible is one book. It's telling the same story from different vantage points, and certainly Exodus, as you say, gives us such a, a rich understanding, helps us with such a rich understanding of a books like Matthew, where we just came from, of course. Absolutely. So uh, you shared three perspectives, and this is just a great segue. I appreciate your, your comments there. You called those three perspectives lenses uh, through which we should read Exodus. Now, those are the historical lens, the theological lens, and the Christological lens. But these lenses are really the perspectives we should be examining as we study any passage of Scripture, right? That's exactly right. But I think the difference is when we read New Testament literature, you know, the Gospels, for instance, you don't have to go very far to find the Christological connection. And, and even theologically, these passages are, are saturated with theological truth. So you just begin to wring them out and you, you find the theology very quickly. I think the difference is in the Old Testament, especially because many of us learned these stories back when we were in Sunday school, 
we almost envision those more as character studies or character stories of we need to have faith like Abraham or, or we need to, to follow in obedience like Moses. And certainly there are those elements that we can learn from. But Exodus and Genesis and other narratives are not necessarily stories about the patriarchs or Moses or even the people of Israel. They're stories about God. And God, as he's revealed with his people and as he demonstrates his character and as he redeems them. And so when we look at those stories, if we understand that they are anticipating Jesus, we now, I think, are reading them in the way that Christ intended them. You know, I mentioned on Sunday when Jesus is walking with those two disciples on the way to Emmaus, he begins with Moses and the prophets and shows how all of them point to Jesus. And even just this past week, I was talking to someone uh, who... Many years ago, they were teaching in the Old Testament for a year in the children's Sunday school class. And they said, are you telling me that we can't talk about Jesus for a year? Which <laughs> is not surprising, but but it is a reminder for us that if all we look at is the Old Testament as the preamble to the New Testament, then we've misunderstood it. Because really it is constantly looking ahead to who Jesus will be, what he will do, but ultimately who God is and how he interacts with his people. So, Tim, with regards to reading, you know, uh, about God in the Old Testament versus reading God in the New Testament, and we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this type of thing, but in many ways, the God of the Old Testament might seem to people to be different from the God, the God-man, even, of the New Testament. Can you talk a little bit about that and why the differences, uh, what's what's going on here? Right. No, I, and that's this a, one whole story. Absolutely. And I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind because I think without being careful in this dis- distinction, we can imagine that the God of the Old Testament is a God of law, a God of wrath, a God of who is a little more distant, whereas then the God of the New Testament would be uh, gracious and, and near and loving. But when we look at Exodus 34, as God reveals his glory to Moses, he says, I am a God who is abounding in loving kindness, quick to show compassion. Now, that's going to look different in different stories, and certainly we're going to see in Exodus 20 and, and following the law. But the law was never the means by which someone was saved, but rather an expression of saving faith in God's provision in his sacrifices and, and a desire to follow him in obedience. And so when we look at the, the promises to, to Adam and to Abraham, we see God's grace. We certainly don't see it because Abraham earned his place at the table or because Moses was this amazing leader. In fact, God often is leading in spite of them rather than through their great strength. And so when we understand that it is all one story, I think it makes us go back and look in the Old Testament for those glimpses of his grace, for the hidden ways even that he is working, because without that, it is easy to kind of just look at it from a more superficial perspective. And as my favorite blogger, with whom I happen to live, just recently mentioned in a post, those are two sides of the same coin, right? Yes. Grace and justice. Mm-hmm. The perfectly 100% just God and the perfectly 100% gracious God, Those are that's the tension there. I, I, I want to say attention. It's not like one is pulling on the other, but he is perfectly both. Yes, absolutely. And the fact that Christ in his death resolved that tension because his justice required that sin be punished and his mercy desired to rescue us and and that's, again, where we're pointing ahead to Christ. And, in fact, is that not how the New Testament narrative ends in Revelation? 
with the conquering king. Absolutely. Executing judgment. Tim, you shared a number of the promises that God had made during those millennia prior to the events of Exodus, you know, promises in particular to Adam and Eve, to Abraham. You know, we didn't talk about the promise to Noah and those who would follow Noah, but it didn't fit exactly in there. But knowing that most of the history was oral at that time and not written, I've got to think that during that roughly 400 years between Jacob and the events of Exodus, when the people were in the nation of Egypt or within the borders of the uh, the area of Egypt uh, under the thumb for that last number of years, however many years that mm-hmm. was, these promises, I'm guessing, were still pretty fresh in people's minds. You know, that's a good question. And, and although we don't really know for sure, I have a hunch. Uh, you know, when we look at Jacob, for instance, when he comes down into Egypt, when he dies, they go in processional back to Canaan. There's a whole bunch of Egyptian officials, in fact, that go along because Joseph was such an influential person. And then fast forward maybe 70 years to when Joseph dies. One of his last requests is, make sure you carry my bones up to Canaan because that's where the promised land is. But my hunch is that as time went on, as Israel experienced prosperity, as they began to worship other gods, as we talked about on Sunday, that they maybe began to think, this here in Egypt is actually the good life. Maybe this is the promised land. And we certainly have evidence of Pua and Shipra, the, the Hebrew midwives, and Amram and Jochebed, who we'll see uh, this coming week in our sermon, who were God-fearing, who recognized that there were promises of God and a responsibility to God on the part of the people. But I think it's interesting at the end of Genesis 2, or Exodus 2, when the people are under severe bondage and they cry out, it doesn't say they cried out to God. God, right. All it says is they're crying out, help. And that's where I think it's so beautiful that God doesn't rescue because they finally got the formula right in their mm. prayer. In fact, he rescues because he remembers his promise, not that they remembered his promise. And he didn't forget it. Exactly. But but in, in this context, and we'll talk about this on Sunday, that, that remembering is essentially bringing to mind as the basis of action. And so he is taking those promises he made and acting on them, even if their hearts had wandered. Interesting. Very good. Good. Well, let's talk about God's hidden purposes. Mm-hmm. You talked about God's hidden purposes on Sunday. And I got to tell you, when you said that, there's a lot going on in my life that that my head started to explode, really, (laughs) and so much to explore. But I'm thinking, in our Western culture especially, we tend to think that we are at point A, and God has made a promise, the fulfillment of which we consider to be point B. So we're going to go from point A, and God's going to fulfill this promise. Everybody's going to be happy. And of course, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that line between A and B is that. But it appears that what you were saying here Sunday is that the fulfillment of God's promises might actually be point M, let's just say. Mm-hmm. And we've got to go through B, C, D, E, F, and G all the way up to M or later. And we need to work hard as believers, as followers of Christ, to see the bigger picture and understand what's going on in order to realize that God's not a, you know, not flaunting anything, the carrot on the stick. Mm-hmm. He's, this is a process. Right. And, and he's the one that's behind that process. And the reason I think that's so important to remember is because my plan or my expectation of how things ought to work 
are not necessarily got. Anything in your life like that right now? Uh, one or, one yeah, or two one things, or two. <laughs> you know, lots of transitions for us that God has just been so faithful. Um, but even that faithfulness hasn't always looked exactly like what we thought it might. But, you know, in Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And as silly as it might sound, we have to constantly remind ourselves he's God and we're not. He's the one who's sovereign. He is the one who sees the big picture. And I think many times we're focused on the destination. He's focused on the journey. We're focused on the end result. And what he wants to do is work in us in the process. And I get impatient, especially if I don't feel like God has given me enough insight to know why he is allowing certain things. If I can maybe get an idea of why, then I might say, okay, I'll be patient because now I can trust because I can see it. But often God doesn't do that. Often he makes us to wait. And I think it's in the valley of suffering that God often draws us to greater dependence on him, brings us to the end of ourselves to where we don't know the answer. We can't solve this problem. And so it's not even a matter of that we need to see the bigger picture, but we need to rest in the fact that he sees the biggest picture, bigger picture. Because even when we ask that why question, If you really think about that for a second, who are we that God owes us an explanation? Who are we to to call him on the witness stand and say, you know, do you have a good reason for allowing this thing or for not bringing this to pass in the way that we think it ought to happen? Let's ask a guy like Job that question. Exactly what I was thinking, you know, that, that even in spite of all that he went through, as he called God into question, God essentially reminded him, I have a perspective that you don't. I have a power that you can't dream of. And so it's not your place to question. It's your place to rest and to submit. And that's a hard place to be, especially if there's somebody that's listening who's who's suffering or struggling, who has a, a child who's a prodigal or who has a loved one who's dealing with cancer. You know, why doesn't God answer in these ways? And this is where we just have to come back to resting in his character, trusting that there's a purpose in his pain, in, in our pain, and that Christ is walking through us and with us in the valley so that we would know him in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. So you're suggesting that my trip down to Florida, point A here at, near our home, to point C in Destin, Florida, and that point B on the side of I-675 involving another car and the Alabama State Patrol, that was part of God's plan. That sounds like it's a whole nother story. <laughs> But I can say with confidence it was part of God's plan. I don't think we need to get into that story right now, but it was a fun time. And I am, Gary, I know you're not listening, but the gentleman who prayed with my family and I with him, what a blessing. Hmm. And again, those are the types of things that if you look at it, what you're just saying, Sandy and I saw that as an opportunity and my mother-in-law as an opportunity to share God's word with another believer, as it turned Hmm. out, who prayed with us. We made a new friend. Yep. Fascinating. It's just a funny off the side of the comment, but it's just a real neat experience. Hmm. It cost me a couple hundred dollars, but that's another story too. (laughs) Anyway, so Tim, we see people today who, like the Hebrew people in Egypt, grow weary of waiting. God's promises are there. They grow weary of waiting. And I got to tell you, I'm somewhat dismayed by the number of people, and I've got to think it's happening within our church. Hmm. Unfortunately, I'm guessing there might be somebody listening today who's really struggling and saying, is this all real? And I'm hearing a lot of voices out here who are telling me that it's not real. Maybe trying to make excuses for God, changing their view of Scripture or their understanding of Scripture or of God. 
of Jesus. Mm-hmm. One descriptive word we hear about in this vein is the idea of deconstruction, mm-hmm. air quotes here. Can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon? And, and it's not new, I know, but I think you know Malcolm Gladwell, if you've ever read any of Gladwell's works, but he calls it a tipping point. Mm. I'm thinking with all the podcasts and social media, it's almost become a fad in some ways that people just, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm deconstructing. What What is this that's happening in our churches and, and at what appear to be ever-increasing numbers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it starts with expectations. You know, when Katie and I first got married, some uh, premarital counseling that we got said, pay close attention to your expectations of marriage because a lot of your conflicts and your disappointments will center around expectations. That was good advice. And Excellent it's, advice. it's true in our religious walk, our, our spiritual walk as well, because we all have expectations of what God is like, how he'll act, and, and even how our Christian life will go. And if we expect that if I just raise my kids in the right way, then they're going to walk with the Lord. Or if I just am faithful to him, then I should get that job promotion or live in the house that I want to or experience good health well into my old age. Then when life doesn't go the way that we expect it will, when we deal with those disappointed expectations and then ultimately disappointment in God, we're faced with a choice where we either trust God in spite of our experiences or we twist the truth of God to fit our experiences, where we then say, well, maybe God isn't good, maybe he isn't powerful, maybe God's word doesn't actually point us to the truth. And so we struggle with certain scriptures that don't fit our experiences. So, So what does it mean that we should train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it? If my child is walking this path, what does it mean that, that God will, will bless us if we live in a particular way and, and we're experiencing great suffering? And so what happens sometimes is people begin to say, I'm going to deconstruct that truth. I'm going to twist the meaning of that scripture to fit my experience. And so as a result, you end up having God's truth dismantled, if you will, that, that fits a more enlightened perspective. So that might be, um, you know, I'm in a really difficult marriage, and I know what God's Word teaches about marriage, but I really want a divorce, and so I'm going to begin to deconstruct what God's Word has to say. Or I'm somebody who's in, in a relationship um, that we're not yet married, and I know what God's Word has to say about sexual faithfulness, but everybody in our culture is living in a particular way, and so I begin to twist what God's Word has to say to fit what my desires are or what my experiences are. How can this be wrong if it feels so right? Exactly. And, and you even see that with, you know, how can we teach a, a barbaric doctrine like hell, for instance? You know, maybe we're going to twist it to where we say, actually, everybody's going to get to go to heaven. There's this kind of... And that's where it often starts, right? Often it can be because... And, and the, the thing that's deceptive about it is it's often born of a, a deep compassion, if you will, a compassion for the lost, a compassion for that family member who's choosing homosexuality, that, that we don't want that to be as as broken as it actually is. But what then happens is we, we construct God in a narrative that fits who we are. And that's an incredibly dangerous path to begin to walk on because we twist it to fit our expectations. I remember several years ago, we were correcting one of our children. I won't implicate them as to say which one it was, but they they weren't doing something that we told them to, and they were being defiant. And I reminded this child, you know, the Bible says, children, obey your parents. And this one said, well, then I'm not sure the Bible's true, <laughs> at least not that part of it. 
And I laughed at it, but it also, it struck me. so many of us go. Don't we do that to where when our heart really desires something, rather than submitting to it, we begin to say, well, maybe the Bible actually doesn't have this right. And that's where I think this deconstruction starts, that we just ignore the Bible's teaching and, and begin to pursue what our heart desires instead. God is at the center of all Scripture, and all Scripture seems to point to Jesus. But in this kind of a case, what you seem to be saying is people start pointing the Scripture to them, or they become the center of the universe. Not even necessarily the center of the universe, although I think that's ultimately what it is, but it's more who's the final arbiter of truth. Who's the ultimate authority? Because they might still look at the Bible and say, yes, it's about God. We need to live for him. But in those places where it conflicts or contradicts what their experience or desire is, then that might be where they soften it because they say, I'm the final authority. I'm the ultimate arbiter of truth. No doubt we'll be talking about this more in in days to come. But uh, Tim, you did share near the end of our study on Sunday that God calls us to what you called a fearless faith, one by which we trust and fear God more than man. And you shared one example where this principle of fearless faith often comes up. It became even more of a prescient example on Monday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently, there was a Supreme Court uh, uh, draft brief or draft uh, 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 decision that was released and has been corroborated by the Supreme United States Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice as the real deal, and that is regarding the idea of abortion. Uh, this is just one of many such matters in our culture, but it right now is at the tip of everybody's tongue. But there's often a price for us to pay when we stand up for what is right, what we consider right. In this case, we believe, you and I would suggest, our church would teach abortion is wrong. Mm -hmm. There's a price to pay when you say that and when you act on that, correct? Absolutely. And and what a timely topic this is, isn't it? I mean, we were just talking about it in relationship to, to Pharaoh and his approach to the infant Hebrew boys. But what I think is interesting is it's not hard to see the the rage and the persecution that awaits those who are willing to stand for life and speak up for the unborn. I mean, that's all that we're seeing on the news here is the, the rage that is being poured out on anybody that would be wanting to stand for life. But I think we have to remember that Christianity is distinctively countercultural, which is why Jesus over and over, and over warned us that in this world we'll have trouble that we should expect to be persecuted in the same way that Christ was, that we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer for our faith because we have to fear God rather than man, and we have to take a stand. And when we take a stand, we should not be surprised when the darkness of the world rages against the light. What I think is important for us, though, is how we take that stand because we've seen Christians quite honestly, behave just like the protesters that we're seeing all over the news who are yelling and screaming and who are holding up offensive signs and all these things in the name of God. And that's why I think it's important to remember, even as we talked a little bit about some of the application points, that when we stand against abortion, that doesn't mean we stand against those women who are dealing with unplanned pregnancies. Rather, we stand with them. Right. We stand with them in compassion. We can stand with them in love and understanding to be resources and supports, both personally and financially. We stand with those women who have dealt with abortion, the trauma and, and the pain and the guilt even that maybe has come with that. And when we do that, we are, we are Christ-like in a bold way. 
And that's not an easy balance to maintain. But whatever the issue is, whether it's sanctity of life or sexuality or the definition of marriage or even issues of religious liberty, I think we have to make sure that we're demonstrating love and kindness even in our boldness. And I think that starts by allowing the gospel to saturate all of our actions in all of our relationships so that when we squeeze it, it's grace that comes out. And uh, so often, and you've, you've referenced this without actually saying it, but so often it's Christians who are Democrats or Christians who are Republicans or Christians who are part of the Tea Party or whatever strain, mm-hmm. uh, if you'll excuse the pun there with the Tea Party, uh, <laughs> whatever strain that we, uh, political bent that we have, but the, there's only one marker that Christ said that we should be known by, and that is love. Mm-hmm. And can we do it in a winsome way? Uh, did not Paul do that when he was basically uh, providing civil disobedience, or he was going with civil disobedience uh, on certain issues? He did so not in a, a a way that promoted him, or not in a way that sought to protect himself necessarily, but just I'm doing this because this is the right thing. Right. But right. I love you. And, and he knew it came at a cost. But I think ultimately you look back at Jesus. You know, yeah. Jesus had an ability right. to speak with uncompromising clarity and unprecedented grace. And when we look at the way, especially to those who are the outsiders, mm-hmm. the hurting, the broken, and the weary, it was the religious leaders that he would maybe save the harsher words right. for. And so I think we just have to make sure that as we are speaking up, we are, we're doing it with love, we're doing it with clarity, not shrinking back, but making sure that our words are, are dripping with gospel grace. And some words. Great, great. Tim, thanks so much. Thanks for your work and looking forward here to Exodus chapter two this coming week. Thank you. Well, Tim Cockrell has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace, and we've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapter 1. You can access that message as well as other Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word as we move on to Exodus chapter 2. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.